Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Sagar and I'm a lecturer in political theory in the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. I'm here today with Niall O'Flaherty, who is Senior Lecturer in History of European Political Thought, also at King's College London. And uh, Niall is talking to us today about his current research, which is on a new book that he's writing. So Niall, what is the provisional working title of this new book? Well, uh... I think uh, it, it will be the title. It's, it's not provisional, and it's called Malthus um, and the Discovery of Poverty. Okay, well, thanks, Niall. Uh, so can you give a sense of the main arguments of the book? Well, yes, I can, yeah. Um, uh, well, I, I, basically, what my research is about is trying to re rehabilitate, if that's the word, uh, Malthus as, um, as a theorist of poverty. Um, and this involves showing that his famous work, and particularly the second edition of his famous work, the essay on the principle of population, was principally aimed at inaugurating a kind of new science of poverty. Um, and, um, well, that rather goes against I suppose, his reputation somewhat. Um, I mean, my book begins with a quotation from Dickens where you have Scrooge, who is, um, who, who is an arch Malthusian, really. You know, when asked uh, by, you know, to donate money to the poor, Scrooge says, well, you know, uh, send, them, send them to the, uh, to the workhouse. Um, you know, I do pay my, my poor rates. And um, the, the response is, well, you know, many of them would rather die than go to the poorhouse. And Scrooge says, well, if they'd rather die, let them do so, um, so we can reduce surplus population. And that's really taken to be a Malthusian argument. And so then Malthus uh, is thought of, I suppose, as, a, as something of an enemy of the poor. Um, but as I'm um, talking, I suppose, to political historians of political thought, or at least, um, you know, this site uh, is mainly dedicated to the history of political thought, I think I'll present the argument uh, from that kind of perspective, from the, in terms of the, um, in terms of the debate in the history of political thought. And Usually in the history of political thought, uh, with some exceptions, Malthus has been presented as a kind of an ideological naysayer to radical schemes for ameliorating poverty. So it's really Godwin and Condorcet, they're the, the good guys trying to remove poverty, and Malthus is saying, no, you can't, simply can't do it, it can't be done, um, for ideological reasons, of course. Um, but, um, and uh, uh, a slightly different version of this is that um, Malthus' main aim is to pour cold water on Smithian optimism about the future of the poor. It's all, you know, Smith says they're doing far better than they were in medieval times. And Malthus says, well, they're not. Uh, um, but um, I suppose... Uh, the most important, one of the most important works in the history of political thought on Malthus has been Anthony Waterman's account. And what he did very well is to kind of give you a kind of microscopic view of um, 
the arguments of the first edition of the essay, the 1798 edition. And he showed how, um, as Donald Winch had done, um, how this was very much part of the ideological battles of the 1790s, the post-revolutionary debates. And what Waterman thinks the essay is about is, you know, um, undermining the uh, perfectionist, uh, perfect, the arguments for perfectibility, Godwin's kind of utopian notions that, um, you know, if you removed government and, um, you know, uh, the institution of marriage, you could have this rather perfect society. Uh, and Malthus says, well, if you did that, you'd unleash the powers of population. And um, very soon, you'd be back to square one. We'd have to institute government and uh, property and, you know, marriage once again. Uh, uh, and um, however, for me, the, the issue with this account is that um, Waterman thinks that when Malthus comes to write the second edition of the essay on population, which is five, six times longer than the first edition, uh, that it's just a continuation of this polemic against the, uh, the Jacobins, as, as he puts it. But that's not what Malthus says the book is about. And uh, Malthus says at the beginning of the essay, the second edition of the essay on um, population, that in exploring these matters um, in 1798, he'd come to realize that the principle of population, which I'll explain in a little while, I think that's probably helpful, um, he comes to realize that it's uh, the cause, basically, of poverty and poverty throughout the ages. And um, not only that, he, he seems to have realized or, or discovered what the solution to it might be. Uh, so as far as he's concerned, it's an epochal moment. It's something akin, I mean, he doesn't say this exactly, but he clearly feels it that it's something akin to the discovery of the laws of gravity, uh, you know, obviously in the social political world. Um, and so I want to show that this is really what the book's about. Um, this is really what he thinks he's doing. Now, in arguing this, of course, I'm not arguing that it's totally divorced from politics at all. I think what I'm trying to say is, if you want to understand the politics and the moral philosophy and the religion, for that matter, then you need to understand this kind of scientific, the science of, the science of poverty. So that's basically the thrust of it. Yeah. Fantastic. And um, just following on from that, then, could you outline the structure of the book itself in brief for us, sort of anticipate a chapter by chapter breakdown? Yes, sure. Uh, well, I start by, um, you know, uh, talking a little bit about the historiography of Malthus, you know, how he's been portrayed as an enemy of the poor. And this this began, you know, in the, the 19th century with people like um, Carlyle and, um, and Dickens, of course. Um, and um, then I basically outlined the argument. Um, 
I, um, I want to show, you know, it has been Donald Winch and Isran Hunt, um, you know, did a fantastic job in explaining that uh, contrary to what uh, E.P. Thompson and many historians after him um, have argued, um, Malthus and Adam Smith were not, uh, were not interested in divesting, um, you know, the economy of moral imperatives. Um, but I want to show at the same time that nonetheless, for Malthus at least, uh, he was interested in transforming the, the moral culture somewhat. So that's how I comment on that um, debate. Um, I, um, I then go on to, so after outlining the basic arguments of the book, um, I go on to give a genealogy of the argument. And why I do this is because, you know, there's a long kind of scholarship, that there's a lot of scholarship, a huge number of articles and books examining the question of um, Darwin's debt to Malthus. And the assumption here is that, you know, Darwin is the great scientist and Malthus somehow represents the ideological, um, you know, uh, sources of the theory of natural selection. So you've got science on one side and ideology on the other side. And um, I suppose what I want to say is, well, uh, Malthus thought he was doing something scientific too. He didn't see it purely as ideology. And so I want to do for, for, for Malthus what so many historians of science have done uh, or Darwin, which is to trace the evolution of the argument. And I think there are two kind of, um, you know, uh, eureka moments. One is uh, on reading uh, The Wealth of Nations. And I, I can confirm here that basically uh, The Wealth of Nations is the source of the principle of population. Um, I just don't, I don't think there can be too many doubts about it. Um, Malthus said, you know, the two people who have understood this, you know, before me are David Hume and um, Adam Smith. Clearly, David Hume didn't really understand it. So, um, and, and Adam, as Adam Smith did, at least Adam Smith understood the principle of population in the same way that Malthus did. Um, and therefore, I, I conclude that he is really the source of the principle of population. And I think it's worth outlining what the dilemma that, um, that Adam Smith identified. Uh, it's something really that Smith mentions in passing, but it's a good opportunity for me to explain the principle of population. So when you get an increase of growth, says Smith, uh, well then, of course, the poor have more children. They get, they're comfortable and they have more children. Uh, um, when you relax, you tend to have more children. This is a, uh, an 18th century assumption. And then they have, children, but of course, that's a problem because multiply faster than you can multiply the food supply. And this inevitably, says uh, Smith, results in high child um, mortality. Uh, basically, Smith, uh, um, you know, 
uh, shrugs and shrugs as well. What can you do about it? Um, you know, it's very unfortunate. And it, it is, um, uh, so this is basically the idea that uh, Malthus picks up on. He, he problematizes this. He, he basically says, well, we can't go on shrugging. Um, and he also sees this as being incongruous with the other parts of Smith's theory, which is saying, well, the poor are doing much better now than they would, uh, they live better now than any, you know, um, African chief. Um, so that's the basic problem, and it comes from Smith. I think the second, uh, um, you know, revelation for Malthus comes on reading Richard. Um, I won't go into this in too much detail, uh, um, uh, but um, in Price's uh, analysis, um, in his revisionary payments, he finds statistics basically coming from Susmilk, uh, coming from Northern Europe, that show the, this, this pattern. Um, I'm not sure if I explained the pattern too well earlier. The, the, um, when times are good, the poor produce too many children. Well, they produce children. And um, eventually, however, they'll, um, they'll hit dire straits. And this will curb their enthusiasm for reproduction. And, um, and, and, and but that's beneficial initially because when they reduce their numbers and, or they don't multiply um, as quickly, um, the price of labor, because uh, they reduce the supply of labor, the price of labor will go up and they'll have good times again. Unfortunately, that triggers the next oscillation. They relax again, they have more baby. And what statistics of Swiss milk showed and uh, the, the statistics um, in Price's work, which Malthus kind of hated, really, just thought Price was a bit of a fool, uh, except for his statistics. Um, uh, maybe an exaggeration, but um, he um, he saw these patterns in these statistics, um, and it confirmed to him that uh, Smith's kind of intuition actually described a principle of nature. So um, that's basically what I'm going to show in the first in the first chapter. Now. The problem, I suppose, for my argument at this point is that most of the first edition is indeed about an attack on Godwin. And because of this prince, if you got the um, egalitarian utopia that Godwin, um, you know, said you could have, um, uh, or that you would have, inevitably would have, um, as, um, you know, uh, we trusted more in reason. Um, well, then you'd immediately get a, a massive oscillation and we'd be reduced to, um, uh, well, we'd have to reinst reinstate uh, government and um, property and marriage. Um, my response to that is, well, yes, of course, that's what, that's what, um, you know, that's why Malthus wrote the first essay as a response. He realized that his uh, researches into poverty 
could be applied to the political situation. Which is another story in the first essay, which, which is, uh, I suppose, contains his first reflections, as it were, on the problem of poverty. It's the analysis of Smith's Wealth of Nations um, and Price's figures. So there's another story there, and I, I think that story predates the intervention in the political debates. So that's the first chapter. Uh, the second chapter is, um, well, then I begin to look at his actual science of poverty. And um, there are two aspects to this. On the one hand, there's a difficulty Malthus has um, in, he thinks, persuading the public that these oscillations are a problem and that they're the cause of poverty. And the problem is that in Britain, France, uh, Western Europe, basically, the oscillations are hidden from view because the um, economies are, are so complex. For example, uh, people frequently don't see that real wages are decreasing because they have eye on money wages. Um, there's the poor laws, lots of other complexities um, that hide it from view. So his aim, one of his aims in the second essay is to show, um, is to show that these, these oscillations exist. Um, and he does this by um, well, he does it in the first books of the essay, where he looks at what he calls the checks to population, first of all, among the lowest stages uh, of human society. So basically, the analysis used is what we would call, you know, the natural history of mankind. So the, the, there's a whole book, basically, um, dedicated to exploring the natural history of mankind. He draws on people like William Robertson, um, uh, as well as drawing on a huge amount of travel literature um, uh, to explore the customs of uh, the American Indians and um, you know New Zealanders. Um, so, um, so the goal in these chapters is to. Show um, to show how these to show that these checks are easy to see in simpler societies where you don't have the uh, economic complexity. Uh, you'll see you'll see the checks because of the sheer brutality, uh, misery, and suffering is so is so evident. So they give you, um, uh, how can I say, a laboratory almost for viewing um, the text to population. So that's one goal. I mean, another way he shows the checks is through, um, is through uh, statistics. And statistics play a huge part in the story. I suppose it's one of the... Uh, one of the reasons why I suppose uh, Malthus is doing something slightly different to earlier, one of the ways in which he's doing something slightly different to Hume and um, 
Smith is this uh, this faith really in statistics in in numbers. Um, so uh, that's one part of the question. But the second one, the second part of the question, and this is really the important one for Malthus, is what is the nature of the texture population? How is population kept down to the means of subsistence? Because we're not constantly experiencing famine. So something else must be going on. And, um, and really that's what the essay is about. It's, a, it's a, a typology, as it were, of the checks to population. But I mean, it's worth saying that in creating a typology of the checks to population, what we're basically doing is greatly uh, expanding the meaning of poverty. Uh, and I, I, I hopefully I'll be able to explain um, what I mean by that. Well, there are three uh, main checks to population, according to Malthus, and one of them is disease. So from the very beginning, Malthus says, well, when you get people dying of disease, that's really a symptom of poverty. And um, I think that one could debate um, you know, whether this was a great insight or whether, you know, I, I mean, he seemed to think that this was the prevailing view in his own society. But um, I've spoken at length to historians of uh, medicine about this, and I haven't got very good answers as to how, you know, novel this view was. But anyway, for Malthus, this is the one, one of the way uh, the lack of food and room surfaces, as it were, shows itself is through disease. And so you, you, you can trace uh, epidemics statistically, and um, they follow that, uh, the, via, the, the pattern, the os oscillatory passion, pattern. Um, so that's one of the way um, uh, the principle of population surfaces. A second way is through war, and this is actually the main check to population, particularly among savage societies. Um, but Malthus says, well, you know, these are clearly nature's last line of defense, as it were, uh, against overpopulation. There must be some kind of more permanent causes of distress which prevent you know, constant war, constant uh, pestilence. And he says, well, actually, the main um, checks to, um, that might be an exaggeration to think, to say he thinks they're the main, but a very substantial part of the checks to population are what he calls the customs um, which reduce population the customs that prevent the rising generation. Um, so uh, what he has in mind here are basically the brutal treatment of women, um, you know, uh, exposure of, um, of, of children um, and, you know, several other customs basically that uh, prevent prevent uh, multiplication. So, uh, and really I think this is probably in the most interesting part of um, the whole science. These, uh, these 
customs, basically. Uh, I think moral causes um, of poverty. Uh, now, uh, so out of this study of, of the customs, um, the customs uh, reducing um, reducing population, he comes to realize that the customs as civilization develops become more rational. And basically, people um, begin to delay marriage and have less children, um, basically because they see that the more children you have, the more miserable you're likely to be. And this is um, a very important uh, discovery for him. Now, he'd always recognized that preventive checks existed, that people delayed marriage. But mainly, he thought this was something that was carried on by the middle classes. They didn't want to see themselves, you know, fall down the ladder and have to um, have to uh, hang around with people without liberal education, as it were. Um, but now he saw that among the poor of, uh, of Europe, um, they were beginning to practice um, preventive checks, prudential restraint, as he called it. And this is, I think this is a eureka moment, really, because it shows the pattern is moving in the right direction. Uh, and what he, what he sees is that as preventive checks increase child mortality, the brutal treatment of women, etc., decreases. So he sees basically, you know, the pattern is moving in the right, right direction. But how does one, um, how does one, you know, give it further impetus? How does one accelerate the pattern, which you're duty bound to do, of course? And his answer is, well, first of all, we need to see what's causing this, uh, this shift in culture, this shift in habits. And what he sees is, uh, is really, it's quite a, a Smithian explanation. He said it's something called decent pride uh, is causing it. People uh, have a little bit of, uh, their conditions improve, maybe from a few years of good harvests. And then um, they they get a few luxuries, they develop a taste for luxury. Uh, and also they develop a kind of self-esteem connected with their improved status. Now, once they have that, they'll be reluctant to go out and marry early and, you know, um, go back to the hand-to-mouth existence which you know you 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 have in savage and ancient societies. So that's the escape mechanism, and I think what's rarely kind of um, you know noticed in the literature is that this is fundamental to his solution. Everything he suggests, he always has in mind. Well, the encouragement, the nurturing of um, of decent decent and proper pride, as he calls it. Um, so 
that's the second uh, that's the second chapter and I go through the third and fourth chapters very quickly or the fourth and fifth chapters basically in these chapters I argue first of all that the religious and moral thought of the essay which has been argued about you know um, a lot for the last 50 years well it's all about poverty it's just it's just a way of advancing this program for promoting decent pride, uh, for um, increasing uh, preventive checks, and therefore reducing poverty. There's nothing more to it than that, really. Um, it's not a theodicy. It's not a theodicy at all. I mean, everybody calls it a theodicy. Anyway, you have to read my book to find out about that. So that's the, the theological uh, and moral side of it. Basically, he's got a difficult case to make, which is to say, well, everybody, you know, tells you, uh, tells the poor that it's their duty, their patriotic and religious duty to have more children. Um, and actually, that's condemning them to poverty. But he's going against the grain of, you know, European culture. Uh, and of course, he's going against the Bible, uh, be fruitful and multiply. So he needs to make a moral case for his, um, for his solution. The final chapter will be about the political thought. And, you know, uh, basically, again, I'm arguing, I argue that the political thought of the second edition of the essay is basically trying to persuade um, the political nation that if they go with his solution, uh, I mean, he, he's slightly worried that by um, uh, um, people might think that in insisting that the key to this is, is the key to resolving, solving, ameliorating poverty is to convince the poor that um, they are responsible for their own children. That's the key argument. That's what they really want, what he wants to get across to the poor themselves. You're responsible. If you have babies, you're responsible for them. Um, uh, and he's concerned that his Whig friends will turn around to him. He's a radical Whig, so he's on the radical side of parliamentary politics. They'll turn around and say, say to him, well, this isn't, you know, promoting liberty. You're, 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 you want to, the poor to be blamed for poverty? That's not. He wants to show, well, quite the reverse. I want to show, uh, he said, I'm going to show you that the principle of, if you go with my solution, eventually um, it will promote liberty. Why will it do so? Well, he turns to um, Thomas Paine's explanation of a mob, um, you know, mob is caused by uh, poverty and corruption. It, 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 for Malthus, a mob is simply a surplus population. Reduce the surplus population, you get rid of the mob. If you can explain to poor people that their poverty is really um, a function of the principle of population and um, that it's in their hands to remove it, well, then you'll make them better citizens. We'll have no need for repression. And gradually then we can 
introduce them, bring them into the political nation, that will further increase their their proper, decent and proper pride. And um, so he's talking about a great increase, really, of the middle classes and a gradual uh, increase uh, of, um, you know, uh, well, allowing, uh, uh, gradually allowing the poor to be involved in politics. So that's my last chapter. I hope that made some sort of sense. That's great. Thanks, Al. I think you've done a really good job for us there of showing um, how people's perceptions might change and, uh, and why we should rethink uh, what um, we think we know about Malthus. Sort of an unfair question I like to ask people, but if it was up to you and you could dictate how your book would change the research field, uh, what would you like the impact of this book to be? What would you like people to read your book and go, ah, now I know not to do X, or now I know I should think Y? I mean, you, you've sort of told us already, but how would you like this to change future scholarship? Uh, well, Ma starting with Malthus scholarship, I think I, 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 I hope that, um, you know, we could just have a more holistic view of what he's about. And... I mean, I was asked, uh, I, I, I recently presented some of these, this research to uh, an audience of historians, um, and I was asked why I didn't just think this was all a political move. Well, it's all a political move, surely. He, he wants to, you know, um, uh, silence the mob or... Um, his his concern is, um, you know, the rebellious poor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, I just think we need to get away from that kind of reductive reading of texts. That's clearly not what he thinks he's doing. It's it's clearly not his intention. And why I, I think we need rather to take him at his word. And now, whatever his motivation is, is another question. And I I never speculate on that because I just don't think we can know it. Uh, undoubtedly, um, everybody's intentions in a text are linked in important ways to motivations, but I, I don't, I am not able to, you know, um, unravel them. So um, hopefully they could read it in that holistic way. But I really do think it's, it's time we just started calling it what it is. It is an enlightened program for um, the amelioration of poverty. You might not like the program. I don't like it all myself. I mean, um, but that's what it is. Um, so that's how I'd like it to change readings of um, readings of Malthus. Uh, I don't exaggerate. You know, there's been a huge amount of wonderful work done on Malthus. Um, Donald Winch. Uh, you know. Um, uh, um, Patricia James, uh, Robert Mayhew more recently, and they've done wonderful work, um, you know, um, to counter some of the, the, the myths about Malthus that emerged in the, in the 60s and 70s. So I don't, um, you know, exaggerate the poverty of the scholarship at all, uh, far from it. But I do think that we need to reorient our view of this work, at least, um, and um, to be clear about exactly what it is, about the foundation. The foundation is this science of poverty. In terms of the field more generally, I think 
I hope I can open a debate uh, which sees, I, I, I think I, I hope I can get people to think about the period in Britain, perhaps in Europe, in a less kind of binary way. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, one of the pictures painted by social historians is of, you know, the old E.P. Thompson story of um, moral economy, political economy, and, um, you know, in locked in battle. And uh, I just don't think that that captures the complexity of the, um, of the picture. Clearly, Malthus thought that he was doing something entirely moral. He thought he had the solution to poverty, uh, no less. Um, and he had strong moral reasons for, um, you know, uh, um, calling on his countrymen to change their attitudes, even though they're extremely counterintuitive proposals, you know, reduce, make the country stronger by having fewer children, um, have have a bigger population by having fewer children. I won't explain how that happens, but um, uh, so um, reduce poverty by, um, you know, questioning um, your charitable instincts. These are, you know, counterintuitive, um, counterintuitive proposals, but nonetheless, no less moral for being so. But on the other side, you know, I think historians of political thought uh, working on these topics have been content to say, well, there is a moral. Of course, you know, Adam Smith uh, was rooted in natural jurisprudence. There's a moral foundation to what, you know, uh, uh, um, he was putting forward. But I think we might need to go on beyond that a little bit and ask, you know, um, what's the character uh, of that um, that moral foundation, and does it represent uh, a shift in moral culture in the period? And clearly, it does at some level. That's fantastic. Thanks, Niall. Um, I think that's uh, a really helpful, comprehensive overview of what we can expect from the new Malthus book. Thank you. Um, so, uh, can you uh, recap for us? Do you know when it's going to be published? I'll have to write the thing first, so uh, <laughs> I, uh, hopefully in the next, say, um, I'll, I'll get it done in two or three months, and you might see it end of um, next year. Well, we'll look forward to it, I'm sure. Thanks very much, Niall. Thanks, Paul.